Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. In about one month from now, there is going to be a very significant event happening in England. It's going to be a very significant event happening at London's Westminster Abbey. King Charles III is going to be crowned. He's going to be crowned the reigning monarch of the United Kingdom. You may have thought he was already coronated, but he hasn't been coronated yet. That coronation is going to see about 2,000 guests. And it's going to be about a three-day celebration. There's going to be a lot of heads of state there. There's going to be a lot of celebrities. It's been in the planning stages for many years. It's estimated that the cost is going to be about the equivalent of 166 million Canadian dollars, that coronation. And during that coronation, King Charles III is going to wear various crowns. Uh, The first crown that he's going to wear is solid gold. It has 444 gemstones, rubies, sapphires, garnets, and others. Later on in the ceremony, that crown's going to come off. He's going to wear another crown. The imperial state crown, that boasts 2,868 diamonds, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 269 pearls, and 4 rubies. In addition, the king is going to be entrusted with what's called the monarch's golden orb and various jewel-encrusted scepters. And while those events are taking place over there... Over here, in other Commonwealth states, we're going to have our own celebrations marking the coronation of King Charles III. Truly, Charles is going to be regaled with all the pomp and all the circumstance that is fit for a king. This morning in Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at a passage that features a coronation. A coronation far more... With my apologies to Charles. Sorry, Chuck. But... We're going to see a coronation that is far more significant than the coronation of King Charles III. But what's going to be striking in this passage, however, is that this coronation features no crown and no jewels and no scepter and no pomp and uh, no celebrated guests and no ceremony. Yet this coronation is the coronation not just of a king, but of the king of kings. And we're going to see Jesus, the King of Kings, riding humbly upon a donkey with a makeshift profession, a procession into a city which largely rejects him. This is a stunning situation in Luke chapter 19, because although this is the most important coronation that human history would ever see, Many of those who witnessed every single detail of this coronation completely missed its significance due to their own sin. By rejecting human pride and human wisdom and human expectation, the Lord ensured that in coronating his king, sinful mankind would be blinded by their own sin and completely missed the meaning of those events. And as tragic as that is, What we're going to see in our passage this morning is that the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people did not detract at all from God's plans. In fact, God the Father in Luke chapter 19 was carrying out his predetermined plans from before the foundation of the world to bring about redemption for mankind. And so let's look in Luke chapter 19 verse 28 and get a glimpse of this coronation. It says in verse 28 of Luke 19, And when he had said these things, 
Jesus had just told some parables. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the and as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had been uh, that they had seen, saying, "Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, "Teacher, rebuke your disciples." And he said, "I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out." This is that passage which generally is referred to as the triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. And of course, that moniker, the triumphal entry, is steeped in irony, because from an earthly perspective, this seems to be anything other than triumphant. A lowly carpenter from Galilee riding on a donkey's colt, slowly entering the city, accompanied by a ragtag group of disciples uh, who are praising him. From an earthly perspective, this coronation seems really a bit pitiful. However, to look at this scene from a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective, a spiritual and prophetic and redemptive perspective, we then understand that this is one of the most, or is the most significant uh, coronation in human history. In these moments, the very Son of God, the Jewish Messiah, is entering the holy city. And with his entrance into Jerusalem, he is setting in motion a course of events which will result in the exposure of the Jews' sinfulness, will bring about ultimately the desolation of the temple, will bring about the obsolescence of the sacrificial system, the fulfillment of a multitude of prophecies, and ultimately will bring forth God's divine plan for redemption. That's all happening in this moment. And so picture Jesus' slow, plodding ride into Jerusalem. And consider that this is setting in motion the grand climax of God's plan to once and for all save men and women from their sins. And to birth a new people of God under a brand new covenant. And these events set in motion by Jesus' triumphal entry, we also see a climax or culmination of the attitudes of the people. Attitudes both positive and negative. Things are going to come to a fever pitch here as we look at Palm Sunday and then Good Friday and then ultimately Easter. The significance of this moment to human history and to God's redemptive plan really can't be overstated. But as we're going to see, the vast majority of those present, shockingly, were completely blind to its significance. And that's a warning for us. Up to this point... Christ's earthly ministry was one uh, which was carried out in such a way as to lead directly to this moment. That is, he taught the crowds, and he healed the sick, and he confronted the hypocrites in such a way as to heighten hope, to solidify religious rejection. 
He perfectly orchestrated all of this according to God's timing so that it would come to a peak at this moment. It's for this reason that we find scenes. You ever wonder about this when you're reading the New Testament and, and some come to realize who Jesus is and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Or they come and they say, we want to make you a king and they want to make him a king by force. And he slips through the crowd and he avoids such a situation. Why? Because Jesus conducted his ministry according to the timing of the Father, and it was all working towards these moments when all of these attitudes, that messianic hope and that religious rejection and so on, all would come to a head according to God's timing at this moment. So when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, the interest of the crowd was piqued. His healing ministry, the word of that has spread everywhere. His authoritative teaching, the rumors that he was the Messiah, all of this is now coming together. His run-ins with the religious leadership, where people witnessed him really, frankly, having arguments with the religious leadership and uh, really exposing their hypocrisy. Word of this has gotten all around, speculation that he is the one. He is the Messiah. It's all coming to a fever pitch. Jesus had made sure that the pump is primed. And so now massive crowds are gathering. And so picture this. You have the crowd of Jesus' disciples who are following with him. They're coming towards Jerusalem. Word has gotten out that he's here. And now massive crowds are coming out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus as well. And so the crowds of his disciples, the crowds from Jerusalem coming together and meeting there as Jesus is plodding along on the donkey. And that explains why there's different attitudes in the group. There are those who are crying out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, and declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. But then you also have religious leaders who, frankly, are upset at what's happening. It's because these massive crowds have come together and they've met at this moment. And so massive crowds are gathering and messianic hope is building. And so some are saying of Christ, I mean, if if the Christ comes, I mean, will he do more mighty works than what this one has done? The crowds are beginning to understand, are beginning to speculate that he is God's promised Christ. And so, add to this the fact that Jesus has recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And you can understand how the crowd's speculation was at a peak. And so the atmosphere here, this is, this is Passover. The atmosphere here is such that pilgrims have come from everywhere. And so there's this kind of electricity in the air. Yeah, the electricity and the excitement and so on that generally comes with Passover, but this is a different Passover because many are speculating that the Messiah is here. In John chapter 7, it gives us a glimpse into this type of situation. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And that was a previous occasion, but you kind of understand the attitude that's building here. And so while the massive crowds are gathering and the messianic hope is building, there's something else coming to a climax at this same time. And that is religious rejection. Religious rejection. Again, we get a glimpse of the type of attitude at play in John 12 from a previous situation. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world the world has gone after him. They're afraid that they're losing their following to Jesus. 
John 9.22, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Religious rejection is solidifying while messianic hope is building and while massive crowds are gathering. And so what we find is an incredible confluence of events coming together at the perfect time according to God's plan. And so Christ has carried out his teaching and miracle-working ministry in such a way as to build up to this exact moment. He's building up the faith of his disciples, and the speculation of the crowds are also building. The opposition of the enemies is also building, and all of this is going to burst forth in mere days. So, with the huge crowd collecting around Christ and the popular opinion emerging that he is the Messiah and all of this uh, enraging those who desire to kill him, what then does Jesus do? Does he lay low? Nope. In days past, he may have chosen not to go into Jerusalem, but now his time has come. And so he tells his disciples, go and find a donkey. It reminds us of what he said in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And so he sends his disciples, go get uh, a colt upon which no one has ever sat. They bring that to him. He mounts that donkey on a makeshift saddle, and he begins to ride it into Jerusalem, knowing exactly what he's riding into, which is the climax of all of these attitudes. Crowds are increasing, messianic hope is building, religious, religious rejection is solidifying, and in all of this, God's sovereign plan is unfolding. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen when he sends his disciples into town. You're going to find a donkey, untie it. You'll be asked, what are you doing? Tell them this. And so that is a wonderful sign to the disciples that Jesus is in control because things are going to seem very out of control in just a little bit. And so Jesus gives that little glimpse of his omniscience as they go and find this donkey. And you say, uh, what is this communicating? Jesus is not coming on a white steed. He's coming on a lowly donkey. Is this significant? It's very significant. In fact, Jesus is showing anybody who has eyes to see and ears to hear that he's the Messiah. And he's doing it by riding a donkey. How so? This is the fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? This is the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's why we say God's sovereign plan is unfolding regardless of what human beings do in this moment. This is all according to God's predetermined plan. And Jesus is signaling, I am the promised one that Zechariah pointed to. And if you read the context of Zechariah 9, you understand that that figure who's on the donkey is God's chosen king. He is the Messiah. Why ride the donkey? Fulfillment of prophecy. Why ride the donkey? Well, Zechariah chapter 9 tells us that the king is coming, having salvation, mounted on a donkey. And it indicates that he's doing so in humility. He's humble, mounted on a donkey. Why is it important in this moment that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes humbly? It's important because so much religious expectation or messianic expectation expected the Messiah to come as a conquering king. They expected the Messiah to come and to overthrow Roman rule. Expected the Messiah to come and to put down all of their enemies and to bring political salvation and deliverance. That's what they expected. Yet he comes on a donkey. You could just imagine, I mean, have you ever ridden a donkey? Anybody ridden a donkey? 
<laughs> You've ridden a donkey? I didn't expect any hands to go up, but Cobra's ridden a donkey. You can picture riding a donkey, just a slow, plodding along, stubborn donkey. <laughs> uh, and here's Jesus coming in humility. What is he communicating? Something very important. I've come as the humble Messiah. The humble Messiah who's come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I've come not this time as the conquering king, but as the meek Messiah. And so Zechariah 9, 9 says he's humble and mounted on a donkey. This is why Jesus came. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus in describing himself and calling out to the crowd says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. When Jesus chooses to describe himself, he describes himself as gentle and as lowly. And he says, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came the first time as the gentle and lowly Savior. He didn't come in the spirit of the Pharisees, dominating, imposing harsh commands, Uh, causing continual spiritual unrest and discontentment. If you're here this morning and you are coming from that type of religious tradition, please understand that's not consistent with the character of Jesus. He didn't come dominating harsh commands, causing spiritual unrest or discontentment. Instead, he comes as the gentle and lowly servant, bringing salvation, which produces what? Rest. Produces rest. This morning, Jesus invites all of us to come to him. He wishes to lift the burden of our sin and give our souls rest. He would have us know that we have been adopted into the family of God. He would have us have that rest of understanding that we're accepted by the Father. He would have us, or he would uh, have us lay down what? All of our self effort and those feelings of continual disappointment when we come up short in those efforts of uh, self righteousness. He would have us find rest through faith in Him. And so, that's Jesus, the humble, gentle Savior. And He's communicating to those in Jerusalem that maybe you have misconceptions as to who the Messiah is. And so, right out of Zechariah 9.9, He comes gentle and lowly and humble, mounted on a donkey. And so, how fitting. Now, for those who had some spiritual discernment, they might have recognized it. For those who were that faithful remnant of Jews, they might have saw that in Zechariah 9, but most did not. So, far from Jesus avoiding the coming confrontation in Jerusalem, he's riding directly into it. In fact, he instigated it, knowing that this was God's plan from the beginning. And so, he had to teach and heal and perform miracles for three years, so that his power and the rumors of his power and authority would spread far and wide thus beginning a wave of speculation as to whether or not he was the Messiah, a wave which would crest at this moment, this Passover week. He had to continually expose the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership and challenge their authority in order to ensure that that opposition against him would simmer and then boil over at the perfect time this Passover week. And you wonder why Jesus kept the reality of his Messiahship a secret? It's because he wanted it all to come out at the perfect time which is this Passover week. Every aspect of Palm Sunday and every event of Passion Week was firmly within the controlling hand of Jesus. He's going to lay down his life, and he has the power to take it up again. 
It's no wonder that Peter later on at Pentecost could preach to the Jews who had rejected Jesus and say, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the, what? The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You're not off the hook. However, this was in God's plan from the beginning. And so Jesus sits atop a humble donkey with a makeshift saddle. And although some may look on and say, what kind of king is this? There was a faithful remnant who would have recognized that he's the Messiah. They would have recognized his identity and the fact that he is perfectly fulfilling prophecy. And so here he is. This is their king. Look in verse 35. And we see the time has finally come for the revelation of his identity. And they brought it to Jesus, that's the colt, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. There's that makeshift saddle. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. These are his disciples that are coming with them into Jerusalem. And as he was drawing near already on the way down in the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they're quoting Psalm 118, by the way. Mark 11 in the parallel passage says they spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches. Those are your palm branches. This is Palm Sunday that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And there they are. This is the time. This is the son of David. And their expectation was that he's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to assert his rightful Uh, ownership of the throne and the kingdom of David was moments away. That's their expectation. There's no doubt as to what's happening here. All these things are coming together according to God's plan. And the people at this moment are ready to receive Jesus as Messiah and King. At least the followers or his disciples are. And so you see the praise there, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What's, ha- what's, what's interesting in all of this is that, as I already mentioned, we have different crowds. We have a crowd coming out of Jerusalem, and we have a crowd coming to Jerusalem. The crowd coming to Jerusalem has already received Jesus, frankly, as Messiah and Lord, and some of those will be, prove to be disingenuous, because, frankly, after Christ's crucifixion, there's a small remnant who seems to remain, who uh, have remained faithful to him. Uh, However, there is a crowd of Jesus' disciples who are legitimately crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the King of Israel, and they understand who Jesus is. But then there's a crowd coming from Jerusalem, and really what they're doing is simply projecting upon Jesus whatever their personal expectations or hopes are in the Messiah. And then you also have some part of the religious crowd who have also come out of Jerusalem. And so this is a mixed group. And there are many here, I think, who are saying the same thing. Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but different understanding as to what that means. There are some who are saying salvation, Hosanna, that's what it means. It just means save. It means save me or salvation. There are some who are crying out salvation has come from Roman oppression. There's some who are crying out Hosanna and they mean, hey, salvation from tyranny. There's some who are crying out the king is here, but really what they mean is the king is a political ruler. There's some who say the king is here, but they mean conqueror. There's some who are crying out the king is here, and really what they're hoping is that he's going to make Jerusalem the religious capital, and he's going to save 
them from their political enemies. However, there's also a smaller group in the larger crowd, a faithful Jewish remnant who mean what they say and have some understanding as to what they're saying. There are those who are ready to receive Christ as Messiah, but the shame of the matter is there are many who are blinded by their sin and have absolutely no idea what's going on. It's easy to look at the Jews in Jesus' day and kind of judge them, isn't it? Say, how can you be so blind? How could you have the Messiah right in front of you? How could you see the, you know, have the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 so clearly, right in front of your face? How, how could you see all these signs and wonders that Jesus commit, uh, performed? How could you hear his authoritative, authoritative teaching and then still reject him? I mean, it's obvious. And then we begin to say, if we were there, we would have believed in him. But then you might hear echoes of another passage when Jesus was speaking to the Jews who themselves said, if we lived in the days of our fathers, we would never have killed the prophets. It's easy to stand in judgment. But the reality is we can't judge too harshly. Because ever since, many have come to Christ with misguided understandings as to who he is. There's many even here this morning who have heard the gospel over and over and over again. You've heard an invitation to come to Jesus for salvation. You've heard that invitation to rest. And you have preconceived notions of Christ, and you've never yet come to him for salvation, having been granted the privilege of so much revelation. We can't judge too harshly. Many come to Christ misguided, ignorant, self-centered, projecting upon Jesus what they want Jesus to be instead of who he actually is, just like they were doing on this day. And so this morning, we would do well to ask the question, who is Jesus to you? Do you follow Jesus because you're trusting him and him alone as your Savior from sin? Do you follow Jesus because you believe he's the Son of God who sent from the Father to reveal the way of salvation? Do you follow him because you believe he is the one whom the Father has established as the one to be honored just as one would honor the Father? Do you follow Jesus because he's the one in whom the Father has invested all authority in heaven and earth? Do you follow Jesus because you know he's the one who has loved you and given himself for you on the cross while you were yet a sinner? Why do you follow Jesus? We can be guilty of being blinded by our own preconceived notions and our own sin, projecting upon Jesus whatever we want Jesus to be. The guilt of the crowd here is that even while the words on their lips were factually correct, many of them had no understanding as to what they were saying and completely missed the moment. They were receiving Christ only insofar as he represented the fulfillment of their fleshly desires. So for some in the crowd, the praise was more correct than they knew. Their words were more virtuous than their hearts. He was indeed the king who had come in the name of the Lord. He was indeed the one who deserved praise. But the reality of the situation was far beyond their understanding, which kind of makes their praise seem a little pitiful. And so this so-called triumphal entry does not have a red carpet. It doesn't have a proper entourage. It doesn't have heralds announcing the arrival of the king other than Jesus' disciples. But instead, there's palm branches. There's a donkey, and there's a fickle crowd. So what does Jesus do? Does he reject that praise? 
Look in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is blasphemy in their minds. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The days of Jesus saying, quiet down. Don't tell anybody who I am. Those days are gone. The huge crowd has put together a makeshift procession. They're waving and laying down palm branches, declaring him to be the Messiah and King and Savior. And Jesus receives the praise. Because this is the moment. It is this year, in this month, on this day, during this Passover, that the Messiah of God would be revealed. It was this very moment when God's promises of the coming Christ would be fulfilled, and Jesus is saying nothing can stop it. If these individuals were quiet, and if they were not praising, and if they were not declaring the coming of the King, then the rocks themselves would cry out. He's saying, you have no idea how significant this moment is. Calling for these to be quiet, to silence them, you're completely blind to God's sovereign plan and how it's being fulfilled in this moment. You're entirely oblivious to the fact that God and His Christ have come to the holy city. Completely ignorant to the fact that this moment is the moment in which you as a people will either receive your Messiah or seal your fate for eternity. And so Jesus, it's as if he's saying, no, I will not tell these to be quiet. This moment is larger than you, much larger and much more significant than you could ever imagine, so much so, again, that if these were quiet, creation would cry out in praise. All of creation and all of heaven understand the significance of the moment, even if these don't. The dull, dead rocks have more spiritual discernment than those blinded by their sin. All of the created order is on edge, understanding the significance. These are the events leading to redemption, not just the redemption of mankind, but the redemption of all of creation. And so the obstinate, hard-hearted ignorance of the crowd was so disheartening. that look what happens in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he, Jesus, wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eye. For three years, Jesus gave clear revelation, taught authoritatively, healed, even raised from the dead, pointed to the scriptures, showed their application. They received uh, or were exposed to that revelation. And what happens is Jesus is now saying, you are now affirmed in your rejection. You've rejected, and now you are going to be closed up in that rejection, and now you will never have eyes to see. And so he weeps over the hard-heartedness of the Jews. If only they could see. If only they could see that he's bringing peace. He's bringing that shalom. He is bringing that soul peace. He's bringing salvation. He's bringing redemption. He's bringing reconciliation between sinful man and their heavenly father. He's doing away with a sacrificial system which always screamed that sin still remains. But they have no idea. He says, if only you knew the peace that I'm bringing. Isaiah chapter 9, which we generally reserve for Christmas, says, for 
To us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, what? Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so he, Jesus, the one plodding along on the humble donkey was what? The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And Jesus is saying, if you only knew. He was the son of David, rightful heir to the throne. His ascension meant the ushering in of that promised eternal kingdom where peace and justice and righteousness would reign for eternity. And here, the representatives of God's holy city, the religious elites, those who purported to be the closest to God and his earthly representatives, not only completely missed it, but actually became hostile towards it. Although the significance of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at this time was lost on the crowd, the significance of their rejection was not lost on Jesus. And so he weeps. With the coming rejection and crucifixion, the Jewish leadership were sealing their fate. The day would come when many from east and west would sit down at table with the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven, and the children of the kingdom would be cast out. The day would come when their temple would be left to them desolate. The day would come when they'd find themselves outside the people of God, outside the new covenant community. And so Jesus knows what this rejection means. And so he who came to seek and to save the lost, the lost sheep of Israel, weeps over those same sheep. If they could only see through their ethnic entitlement and their religious pride and their self-righteousness, they might recognize just who Jesus is. They might see that he is the Savior, the Savior of their souls, the Savior which they desperately needed. And so in conclusion... As Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the only Savior and Lord, the one who came to save mankind from their sins, the final fulfillment of divine prophecy, rode in procession right before the eyes of the crowd. They were entirely oblivious to his identity. They spoke misguided praise. Many of them did. They offered conditional loyalty. That'll be seen when the crucifixion, his arrest comes, and many are scattered. They offered praise, which would soon dry up and loyalty which would be exposed as fickle. But what strikes us here is that these Jewish men and women who had such immense spiritual privilege, those who had the scriptures and the prophets and the covenants, the one from whose line the Messiah came forth, these who had such incredible privilege are the ones who are rejecting. They did not see him as the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. They did not see him as the one who came to die for their sins and to rise again. The best many of them could do was just plug Jesus into whatever distorted preconceptions they had about the Messiah. John tells us in John chapter 1 that the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's what we're seeing playing out. So this morning we ask... As we enter Holy Week, and as we look towards Good Friday, and as we look towards the resurrection, do you understand the significance of these events? I mean, personally, do you understand who Jesus is? Are you part of that small remnant who can see the incredible spiritual significance of Jesus?
and His death on the cross? Are you part of that, as Jesus described it, little flock who recognizes Jesus as the Son of God, who was sent to save us from our sins? Are you part of those few on that narrow road that leads to eternal life, trusting Jesus and Jesus alone for the salvation of your soul? Or is Jesus something else to you? Perhaps you're part of that larger crowd, the spiritually dull, the blind, and the deaf. Are you part of the crowd who's been granted direct access to Jesus and has been given clear revelation as to who he is, yet you remain obstinate, determined to continue living for yourself? These are the questions that we're all confronted with on Holy Week. So this Holy Week, Jesus is being paraded in front of all of us. As he is considered this week and as we meditate upon Christ and we meditate upon Holy Week, we need to be reminded that he is the only Savior and Lord. He is the only means of entering the kingdom of heaven. He is the one who is to be honored if we are to honor the Father. He is the one before whom we must bow the knee and the one we must confess as Lord. He is the Son of God sent by the Father first to come as the meek Messiah, giving his life to provide salvation for all who will one day come again as the conquering king. To miss this is to be like the ignorant crowd who is blinded by their own sin and their own religious confusion, completely oblivious to what was unfolding right in front of them. And so this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, don't miss this moment. The fact is, Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty of your sin upon the cross. He did it while you are yet a sinner and yet unworthy. The Bible says that God showed his love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation comes to those who trust Him and Him alone for salvation. Those who confess Him as Savior and Lord. The Bible says if you confess the Lord Jesus, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So don't miss the moment. As we pray, I want you, as you uh, hear us pray, to perhaps bow your head. Confess to uh, God the Father that you believe that Jesus is His Son, who died for you on the cross, and that you're trusting Him and Him alone as Savior and Lord. For those of you this morning who are Christians, let's be encouraged this Holy Week to be reminded of who Jesus is and all that He's accomplished for us through His righteous life, through His sacrificial death, and now in His ministry exalted at the right hand of the Father. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for Jesus. And Lord, we know the only reason we have eyes to see and ears to hear is because of Your mercy and Your grace. And so we thank you. We cannot take any credit for our own salvation or our own faith. We know that it's by grace that we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's your gift so that no one can boast. And so, Lord, we confess our inability and our unworthiness. We thank you for salvation by grace through faith alone. We pray that you'd help us this week to consider Jesus, his humility, His humility that led him not only to the incarnation, but to sacrifice. Help us to consider all that he's accomplished through his death upon the cross and his resurrection. Help us to live in that peace that he's brought to us, that peace that comes with knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we have relationship with you. Help us to recognize that he is a gentle and lowly Savior who has come not to burden us, but to lift the burden because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so help us to rest in Jesus and help us to have a sense of utter indebtedness and thankfulness to what he's done for us on the cross. And then, Lord, we pray for those this morning who are here who are not yet believers. 
Maybe they have religious notions, they have thoughts about Jesus, they've been exposed to maybe even preaching or teaching in the past, but maybe this is that moment where they've come to see Jesus for who He is. They see in His face your glory, and they see their need for Him as Savior and Lord. So I pray that these then would trust you. And so I pray you would hear those prayers of confession, repentance, hear those prayers of faith, trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then we pray that you would grant that wonderful assurance of salvation. And I pray that these who receive Jesus would make that decision to be baptized in his name, making that public profession or making that profession public. Lord, we thank you for this. Continue to work. Thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we confess, Lord, acknowledge that Lord, salvation is all entirely your work. So we pray that you'll continue, even as we leave this place, to draw people to yourself by your Holy Spirit, taking off the scales from the eyes, helping individuals to see Jesus for who he is, their need for salvation. And Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory for any salvation that occurs. We give you all the praise and all the glory for any evidence of spiritual life and spiritual fruit. Uh, We thank you for it, and we acknowledge that this is what you have accomplished through your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.